As unbelievable as it sounds, we made a mistake a while back. Well, maybe not so much a mistake as an omission. We left something out we probably should have covered at the time, but for whatever reason, we didn't. And sure enough, it's time to correct the mistake. Or would that be emit the omission? What happened was this. Once upon a time, many, many, many moons ago, say March of 2019, you know, when we were still free-range humans with recognizable facial features, two people sat down to have a conversation. Now, in order to have this conversation, certain preparations were made. In one instance, the individual in question set aside all the hard work they'd been doing in preparation for publishing things to their website. They noticed their clock and decided there was still time to have one more cup of hot, steaming morning beverage before calls were made and they were locked into their seat for the next hour and a half. Meanwhile, two time zones away to the left, the other would-be conversationalist had just awakened and, noting that time was running short, decided to skip breakfast for the time being in favor of preparing their own hot, steaming morning beverage and starting up one of the computers that would make all this conversing possible in the first place. Slightly bleary-eyed, they sat down, on time, believe it or not, and announced their presence to the person two time zones to their right, after which, greetings exchanged, the conversation began. Now, in the course of this delightful and wide-ranging conversation, one of the participants no doubt said something along the lines of, and so we see that Watsi has learned nothing over the course of the last 10 years. I'd be angrier about this, but this is some really good coffee this morning. To which the other person no doubt replied, I agree with you entirely. Unfortunately, I don't drink coffee though, so I can only rely on your impression as to the worthiness of your cup of joe. You don't drink coffee, they would have asked, with a certain amount of amazement in their voice. How do you get started in the morning? Kicking and screaming, I... Uh, the other party would reply, I'm more of a tea person. Tea? Tea isn't a real drink, it's just some damp leaves. And before we hash that entire conversation out again, let's just say that's how you end up with an episode about coffee, followed by a far superior episode about tea. Both of which you can listen to again, whether or not you missed them the first time. The problem is, though, in the zeal to solidify our positions on the subjects at hand, we forgot one very important thing. So important that it isn't exactly clear why there wasn't a third episode in the series at the time. See, some people, they don't drink coffee. And some people, they don't drink tea. But there are also some people who drink neither coffee nor tea, and hard as that may be to believe, some of those non-tea or coffee-drinking people enjoy a third sort of hot, steaming morning beverage. Or even an evening beverage, if the desire so takes them. Hot chocolate. I know, how did we miss that one? Maybe it's because it's considered a kid's drink by those who drink coffee or even tea. Or maybe it's because it doesn't pack enough punch or have enough mystique associated with it for the hot beverage connoisseur. Or maybe it's because you've only ever had it out of those little packets you rip the top off of that come with dried up itty bitty marshmallows. Because if that's your only experience of it, you don't know hot chocolate.
This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Just to forestall numerous complaints, we want to be clear. This is not the history of chocolate. Though some of it will enter into the picture, this episode is primarily about the drink known as hot chocolate or hot cocoa, depending on where you're from. In either case, both rely on drinking chocolate, which is a very different substance than the chocolate found in your favorite candy bar. Well, you can make it with regular chocolate, but you're going to have a very different experience than you would get from chocolate prepared specifically for drinking. See, regular chocolate is not really your friend when it comes to a nice, smooth, pleasant-tasting drinking experience. It tends to be bitter and thicker in a not nice way, and mostly what you end up with is a cup of hot, chalky, bitter, watered-down, syrupy mixture in need of lots of sweetener that's best used as an ingredient in some other recipe. We'd recommend against it, although, delightfully enough, some shaved chocolate over the top of your hot cocoa is delightful. It all goes back to the Mayans, really, at least as far as anyone can tell. Around 500 BCE, the Mayans were grinding up cocoa seeds along with cornmeal and chili peppers, adding some water to it, and drinking it. Which not only sounds terrible, but gets even worse when you realize they were drinking it cold. We suspect you wouldn't be able to tell very good bedtime stories with that, and a quick glance at Mayan mythology, which features a maze hero who ends up with his severed head tied to a cocoa tree, seems to confirm it or at least confirmed that the Mayans had very strong feelings about both corn and cocoa. The Mayans were also the earliest baristas. They'd take their cold cocoa concoction and pour it back and forth between their cups and the pot they made it in until a thick foam developed before drinking it. We can only wonder how long this took and how dedicated they had to be to drinking cold cocoa in order for it to all work properly, but we're fairly certain that there weren't any cute designs in the resulting foam. Fortunately, it didn't cost an arm and a leg for a cup of cocoa drink. Everyone was allowed access to it, with the only distinction being the sort of vessel you had available to drink from. The richer you were, the fancier the container, with the very rich drinking from large, spouted vessels that were so very special that rather than pass them on to the next generation, they were buried with their owners. The rest of the Maya presumably drank from whatever the equivalent of the Mayan solo cup was. When the Spanish showed up, the first thing they noticed about the drink as it was at the time was that the Mayans hadn't encountered sugar yet. Which is true. Sugar didn't come to the Americas until the 1500s, which meant that the drink, which was now being flavored with a bit of vanilla and other spices, was also very bitter and something of an acquired taste which we all know translates as, I'm drinking this thing you gave me for the sake of politeness and not because I want to. Please don't offer me more. At some point, it started being served hot, though no one is sure exactly when that happened. However, 16th century Jesuit missionary Jose de Acosta described the drink as loathsome to such as are not acquainted with it, having a scum or froth that is very unpleasant to taste, Yet it is a drink very much esteemed among the Indians, wherewith they feast noblemen who pass through their country. The Spaniards, both men and women, that are accustomed to the country, are very greedy of this chocolate. They say they make diverse sorts of it, some hot, some cold, 
and some temperate, and put therein much of that chilly. Yea, they make a paste thereof, the which they say is good for the stomach and against the catarrh. Of course, by then, he was describing the Aztec version of it. Apparently, it was so good that the Aztec ruler at the time was drinking as much as 50 flagons a day. The recipe included not only vanilla and chili peppers, but also pimento. You know, pimento, the little bit of pepper you get in olives, cheese, and bread, and a drink that was made either with water or wine, depending on how fancy folks wanted to be and how important the drinkers were. The resulting drink was said to be a cure for diarrhea and dysentery, and maybe even an aphrodisiac, because almost everything foreign and strange was back then. At least as far as the Spanish were concerned. But when Hernando Cortez wrote to King Carlos I, he at least had the decency to say chocolate was a drink that built up resistance and fought fatigue. Naturally, of course, the drink found its way into Europe via Spain. In 1585, it arrived in Seville. It's important to remember, this was the only sort of chocolate that existed. Solid bar chocolate hadn't been invented yet. If you wanted chocolate, you had to drink it, and what you were drinking was still essentially the same bitter, spicy drink from the Aztecs. However, as the drink slowly gained in popularity, it eventually caught on in the court of Emperor Charles V, turning it into the fashionable drink for the upper classes. From there, the cocoa beans became part of the dowry of members of the royal family as they were married to other European royals. The beans were scarce and hard to come by, and the demand for them was high, which meant they were valuable. Of course, it was still a cold, bitter drink, but soon it became a hot, sweet drink when the Europeans decided chili peppers weren't really doing anything for them. Hot chocolate became so popular that chocolate houses opened throughout Europe, much like today's coffee shops, and you could get almost anything added to your hot cocoa for additional spice and flavor. The good sort of spice, not the spicy sort of spice. Although, it's hard to say it was an improvement. One recipe called for hot cocoa infused with fresh jasmine flowers, amber, musk, vanilla, and ambergris. Let's just look at those ingredients for a moment, shall we? Jasmine flowers come from a shrub or vine related to olives. Nice fragrance, check. Amber, fossilized tree resin. Folk medicine healing properties, noted for a heavy, musky scent when combined with nitric acid, and a pinewood scent when burned. Probably won't kill you if ingested. Sort of check, but yuck. Musk. Glandular secretions from mammals such as musk deer used as a perfume base. Strong odor. Australians have musk sticks, which are a confection that uses artificial musk. Again, sort of check. Vanilla. We all know what that is. Check. And finally, ambergris. When you consider that the word means, in the Latin and French from which it came, gray amber you begin to suspect there's going to be a problem. You see, ambergris is... How can we put this delicately? Not whale poop. True, it is produced in the digestive systems of sperm whales. And true, it does exit the whale's body through the only opening suitable to the purpose, 
And true, it does smell strongly of poop when fresh, but it is not whale poop. Instead, it is a waxy, flammable gray substance produced by the bile duct in the intestines. Much like the oyster and its pearls, scientists think the bile duct of the sperm whale produces ambergris in response to the whale ingesting hard, sharp, indigestible objects like the beaks of giant squids. Because it is unpleasant trying to pass such things without the protection of ambergris, as we are sure you can entirely imagine on your own without us going into detail. The ambergris is produced, covers the object in question, and over the course of several years, builds up around the beak or other object and eventually passes from the whale's body to float around in the ocean, aging. Folks reckon only about 1% of all sperm whales produce this stuff, which makes it very rare. What made it valuable was the smell. Not the smell of fresh ambergris, mind you, but the smell it acquired as great lumps of it floated around the ocean getting older. There, it is subject to photodegradation. That is, the sun shining on it as it bobs along with the current causes chemical changes, altering its properties, while at the same time oxidizing, which produces further chemical changes. It hardens, darkens, and develops a crusty, waxy texture and a new odor described as sweet, earthy, marine, and animalic. A richer, smoother version of the smell of isopropyl alcohol, apparently. You used to be able to make your fortune if you found a lump of ambergris on the shore, because the perfume industry would pay nearly anything, up to and including their pleasantly scented firstborn child, to get their hands on some of the stuff. Nowadays, though, ambergris is so rare that the perfume industry turned to making artificial ambergris, and any you do find is likely to be regulated in some fashion. You can't even bring the stuff into the U.S. from elsewhere, as the Endangered Species Act of 1973 made both trade and mere possession of it illegal. Naturally, of course, you'll know all about ambergris already from such classics as Moby Dick and Bob's Burgers. Remember, all this was going into the hot chocolate being consumed in chocolate houses of the 17th century. We can't imagine it tasted very good, but it sure must have smelled pretty amazing, which was maybe the point. The president of the Royal College of Physicians, Sir Hans Sloan, visited Jamaica and there tried chocolate, but found it to be nauseating. Who can blame him? Bitter and full of animal products mixed with frankly inedible bits of plants, it would have been hard to swallow. Which is probably why Sloan decided to add some more animal product to it in the form of milk. Which made it just about not entirely awful enough to bring the new recipe for chocolate with milk back to England, where it was quickly snaffled up by aristocrats and by 1797 declared the drink of the gods. Still, the Spanish were working on significant improvements to the drink in hopes of making something they could corner the market with. Working from the old recipe, they soon realized the difficulty of getting many of the original ingredients together at anything less than the cost of an entire mansion. Instead, they began substituting different spices in the hopes of getting something close to the original. They replaced chili peppers with black pepper, the dried flowers of the sacred ear plant, or orejuela, were replaced with cinnamon, 
and sugar was used in place of honey. Lots of sugar, we expect. And sure enough, with sufficient replacements, a cup of hot chocolate began to resemble something we might actually drink today. And then, in 1828, along came a fellow by the name of Konrad Johann von Houten to ruin everything. Or, depending on your point of view, in 1828, along came a fellow by the name of Konrad Johann von Houten to save us all. By pressing raw chocolate liquor, the melted mass produced by grinding dried fermented roasted cocoa beans and heating it, in a hydraulic press, he was able to remove the cocoa butter, the fatty part of the bean that gives it its melting properties, leaving behind a cake made up of the dry cocoa solids. The left behind solids are extremely bitter and acidic. But if treated with an alkaline salt like potassium or sodium carbonate to neutralize the acids, what you have left is Dutch process or Dutched cocoa. It's famous for its dark color and mild taste. Grind it up into a powder, and that's what you've got, cocoa powder, ready to use and capable of melting in water. All it needed was a bit of sugar added to be delicious in its own right. Oh, also, if you add sugar to the powder and then add back in some of the cocoa butter, you can press the resulting mix into a bar shape and start the entire chocolate bar candy industry. But that's really just a side effect of getting better hot chocolate, which was the point of the whole exercise. But you have to be a bit careful. First off, because unlike the way we've been using it here, hot cocoa and hot chocolate do not mean the same thing. And neither one of them means the same thing as instant hot cocoa or chocolate. What's the difference? Glad you asked. Hot chocolate is made with actual chocolate freshly grated or chopped into small pieces and added to a pan of warm milk along with sugar. The whole thing is stirred until the chocolate melts and mixes with the milk to form a nice, thick drink. Because it is made with already processed chocolate, the chocolate itself already contains cocoa, sugar, and cocoa butter, in addition to what is added during cooking. Hot cocoa is made with cocoa powder, and so does not contain as much cocoa butter as hot chocolate. It retains all the nutritional value of hot chocolate, but much, much less fat. All you need to do is add the powder to hot water or milk, sugar to preference or not at all, and enjoy. Instant mixes, either cocoa or chocolate, can be based on any combination of cocoa powder or powdered chocolate, depending on the manufacturer. It also usually contains powdered milk and a sweetener, usually sugar, along with some thickeners and stabilizers. Add it to hot water and you're done. Taste and experience will vary by manufacturer. And that's it. That's all there is to know about hot chocolate and cocoa. Let's all sit back and enjoy one of the world's most universal comfort foods without any further discussion or argument. We can all agree that hot chocolate is delightful and call it good. How? How could we not all agree with that? Well, first off, you could be from Belgium, to whom most everything we've just said might sound a bit weird. See, in some places in Belgium, if you order a hot chocolate, you get a cup of steaming milk and a little bowl of bittersweet chocolate chips, which you are expected to dissolve yourself. In Vienna, 
you might get a hot chocolate with an egg yolk in it to increase the thickness of the drink. In Italy, extremely thick hot chocolate is made by adding cornstarch. In Spain, you might only see hot chocolate on the way out the door to work, where a thick, pudding-like hot chocolate comes with a churro in the traditional working man's breakfast. In France, they might give you the expected cup of hot chocolate at breakfast time, along with sliced bread, butter, jam, honey, or Nutella to dunk it in. In parts of South America, like Colombia and Ecuador, a cup of hot chocolate isn't complete without some soft farmer's cheese on top. In Peru, they add chocolate syrup in addition to the regular drink, and in Argentina, they get straight to the point by adding sugar and an entire chocolate bar to hot steamed milk. In Mexico, hot chocolate often comes in the form of a tablet, along with cinnamon, sugar, and vanilla, which dissolves into hot milk or cream and is blended until frothy and creamy. Around here, though, we mostly had, before our doctors told us it was a no-no, instant cocoa, which was very sweet already and probably the reason the doc said to lay off. As a kid, our grandmother would frequently treat us to a large cup of cocoa in the evening, topped by a variety of marshmallows, some of which were allowed to melt away into the drink, and some of which were eaten immediately. And of course, any restaurant worth its salt can pile whipped cream on top of a mug of hot cocoa until you need a signed stamp note from your doctor to even look at it. But we'll let you in on a little secret. A spoonful of instant cocoa mix added to an evening tea is a delightful way to pass an evening, no matter what the doctor says. And no one said how big the spoon had to be, either. Our grandmother taught us that, too. And finally, we learned one other thing, courtesy of hot chocolate. Have you ever noticed that the sound of the spoon hitting the side of the mug of hot chocolate changes pitch for no apparent reason? Try it next time you make a cup of cocoa from a packet of powder. As the powder mixes in, the tapping gets higher. Well, it's all because of the bubbles trapped in the liquid as it is stirred. And if you'd like to know more about it, look up the hot chocolate effect. We hope you enjoyed this episode of GM Word of the Week and took some comfort from it. Hot chocolate being a comfort food and all. There are lots of episodes yet to come this year, but we wanted to take a moment to remind you that GM Word of the Week doesn't happen nearly as well without your support. If you already help support us on Patreon, thank you very much indeed. We've got 274 episodes because you helped make it possible. If you haven't pledged your support to help yet, that's okay. We know how it is. When you're ready, we'll be here. And so will 274 more episodes if everything goes as planned. To find out how you can help support those as-yet-unheard episodes, head over to our webpage at gmwordoftheweek.com and find the yellow banner at the top of the page or look for our support page. It doesn't take much to help out, and every bit counts. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian. Those little green-colored mini marshmallows were the weird ones, right? Casey. Music for this episode was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. The world won't get more or less terrible if we're indoors somewhere with a mug of hot chocolate, Kim said. Though it's possible it will seem slightly less terrible if there are marshmallows in the hot chocolate.